Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. This is take two, because we started a moment ago, and for some reason... Why in the I world do I... you think people need to know that? Well, I don't Can know. we just act like we've been here before, sir? Because we are being our authentic oh selves, and we're letting people know that, listen, we mess up. We screw things right, up. Right, but and our so... authentic self is not boring and telling people irrelevant information like, hey, we recorded two minutes of the podcast, and then, okay. Someone cares. Someone cares. Yeah. What's Someone astonishing cares. you? What's astonishing me? Well, <laughs> let's see. Oh, um, you know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is um, that, that story about the feeding of the 5,000. And mm-hmm. the part that I adore is it's where Jesus just tells the disciples to start giving out the five loaves and bread and two fishes to people. Mm-hmm. And it's that that's that's what sparks the miracle right and when you look at the miracles of jesus you'll see that often the miracle is sparked by some simple act of faith some doable act right right? and so um what's astonishing me is that i am serving a congregation that on most sundays has less than three children one mm-hmm. of which is mine. Yes. And um, we are preparing for a summer camp uh, in a matter of weeks, uh, well, about a month or so, to begin a summer camp. And at first we were thinking, okay, we might have 20 kids. Mm-hmm. Then it was 40 kids. And um, just last week I got word that we may need to get ready for about 80 kids. That's awesome. That is, I mean, truly astonishing. Mm -hmm. It is, it's astonishing to me because we didn't plan it. I, I would be lying if I said, Hey, I, I, I put to work some of my seminary training or my leadership skills, my social skills has nothing to do uh, with any of that. It came out of, a step of faith we took with Project Outpour uh, to provide showers for uh, our brothers and sisters in the neighborhood who are experiencing homelessness. And the um, director of that ministry introduced us to a woman in the neighborhood who ministers to children with families who are living in hotels. And so we started a conversation with her in December. And out of that conversation, grew this summer camp and because she has been so faithful in building relationships with the most vulnerable in our neighborhood um, we have and are benefiting from that and uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg schools has gotten involved and uh, teachers from the school system are getting involved and so we have a real opportunity to um, aid the spiritual, emotional, uh, academic development of these kids in our neighborhood. And we are super excited. And again, we sit back and go, we, we did not make this happen. This is absolutely the work of God. Yeah. I mean, what I think is so interesting about that and what I want to pull out is that you said we didn't plan it. And I think it's really important to like press into what you mean by that, because what you don't mean is you're going to like pick a day in June and say, Hey, anybody who wants to come, come. I mean, it's not that you're not being 
thoughtful and responsible and being good stewards. But what you are doing is sort of reversing how many Christians and I think particular Presbyterian flavored Christians often approach things, which is we normally say like, okay, well, what do we want to do? Let's make a plan. And then we will pray and say, okay, God bless our plan. Mm -hmm. Like we did this for you. So make it happen. And I think, you know, what is much more ironically faithful (laughs) is to allow the spirit to lead you into what God is already doing and to make yourself you know, to show up curious and available and seeking, Lord, you know, what what are you calling us to do and how can we be available and how can we not come in here and say, this is what we're going to do, but show up in a space and, and say, Lord, where, how, how can we serve how can we serve you? How can we magnify your way? Um, and I, I think that that's really um, just a huge paradigm shift that we have to embrace because I think there's so much anxiety, I mean, in the world, but particularly on the parts of the body of Christ that are mainline Christians. And we're sort of saying like, oh, the world around us is changing and our internal institutional world is changing and the dominant emotion seems to be fear like we don't have enough we're running out panic how are we going to do the things that are essential that we do in the world and I think it just really betrays how we have sort of drifted into some really um, attractive idolatry of feeling like you know, Jesus has ascended into heaven and left us behind to hold down the fort <laughs> and finish the job. And and so that's why we have this scarcity mindset. That's why we have this sense that the people who aren't with us are against us instead of feeling like, no, we are um, entering into the kingdom like little children. We are um, limited. Uh, we are weak. And God is glorified not in our imperial plans, but when we show up saying, you know, I'm going to go and have lunch with this person and I'm going to say that this um, ministry can come and offer showers on our parking lot, even though people will look at that and say, well, what does it matter? It's not ending homelessness. It's, I mean, just saying like, well, but we feel like this is what the Lord is calling us to do in this moment. And we're not going to win any awards or get any articles written about us. And it's not going to attract anyone to us, but we're just going to do it for the simple reason that we believe it's faithful. And that sort of that one, one step at a time journey is what leads us into the heart of a life that we are not actually designing or producing for God, but that we know something is in us that's not of us. And we can no longer be terrified and in denial of our own limits, <laughs> um, but that we can sort of say, hey, I am really limited here, but God is not. And God being unlimited does not mean that God becomes my cosmic bellhop to be deployed in the places and ways that I deem fit, but it does mean that I am surrendered and saying, Lord, you can have, you know, you can have what I have to give and I give it to you, trusting that you will use it for the kingdom. And I 
may or may not see visible results of that. And that's okay with me because I believe what you said on the cross and what was vindicated on Easter, which is it is finished. These powers and principalities, the battle is over. And so what we are doing is living now with the kingdom in our midst, living as if we already are citizens of the kingdom because we are, and we're experiencing like the alreadiness of God being miraculously and abundantly at work in the world. And also the not yet of, oh, some of these things that used to satisfy us. So cultural agency and competency and power and like, they're not available to us. And you know what, that's actually a good thing because we were seeking and finding our satisfaction in them instead of in God. And so we weren't living as salt and light. So, I mean, I just, I love that whole story of saying like, you all didn't sit down. I mean, I'm not knocking doing a strategic plan, but you didn't sit down and say, okay, here's our strategic plan of how we're going to save the neighborhood and save the church. You just wake up every day and say, what does it look like to be faithful to God today? And there are going to be some things I'm going to do that will look like a waste of time. And I'm going to do them knowing that the seed isn't wasted. Um, yeah. yeah, at one time, the largest church in the world was pastored by um, David Yonggi Cho uh, in Seoul, South Korea. And I think it had um, a couple hundred thousand members, if not more than that. Um, back in the 80s, 90s, can't remember uh, when, uh, but this large church growth conference brought Pastor Cho to the U.S., to teach American Christians how to grow the church. Right. And um, people, well, many were disappointed because they said basically what he did was he stood on the platform and for about 30 minutes said various versions of, I pray, I obey. Mm -hmm. I pray, I obey. And mm -hmm. they were... They were looking for, you know, the five point, right. three point strategy. You right. know, this is how you do it. He says, No, I, I pray, I ask God, what do you want us to do? And that's what I do. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is we have such a clear idea in our head of what being faithful looks like. And we think being faithful means I'm going to be leading or participating in a large, like successful institution and I will have an important and successful life. And so the reality is that's not what the gospel promised us. And, you know, I think that the, just the, the terrible good news is we have everything we need to be faithful to God, everything we need. And so if what we want is to be faithful, then we are so free. We're so free. And if what we want is for God to do things for us, then we are caught in a bind of our own vision and longing and expectations and desires, you know, and because I think, you know, we're doing some discerning with the Grove, some long-term discerning about um, a particular ministry opportunity. And I think for me, I have a, I have a very um, strong desire um, for a particular outcome. Like there's just something that I really 
believe um, is faithful and what the Lord wants. And I just, I do. Um, But I don't have, I mean, I feel like the Lord is really um, doing a huge work inside me because I both really care and feel very free to be really honest about what I think. Um, And I also do not need to quote win because I'm very aware that while it is absolutely part of being faithful to be honest with my community and authentic with my community, I'm very aware that that what that produces might not be what I expect to, to produce. And so this particular decision might work out in a different way. And while I will have very human, like, feelings about that and worries about that and concerns about that, I will also know that it is entirely and inevitably possible that God will be faithful in the other outcome, right? And so that, I just think, like, frees us to show up and say, hey, we, we, what we want is to be faithful. What we don't know necessarily is what that will look like. And that, you know, one of my favorite stories is, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being like, you know, these three dudes in Persia in exile, they're faithful to God. It ends up getting them, you know, in trouble with the authorities. They're going to be executed and thrown to the lions. And they say to the king, like, hey, our God is God. (laughs) And so, you know, we believe that our God will take care of us. And is that the lions? It's the furnace. Sorry, I got them confused. Well, it um, it happens in, there's several stories, right? right. But God rescues me, us, great. If God doesn't. Oh, you're going to take the punchline. That's so rude. I just did all that setup and then you're going to steal the punchline. That is rude. (laughs) You asked. No, I wanted to know if it was lions or furnace and it was furnace, but it's furnace. And anyway, they're standing at the edge of the furnace and they're like, our God's going to keep us safe because our God is a real God. But even if not, we're not going along with you and your agenda because we, you know, we believe in this other way. And so I think like they stand and they have total confidence in their God, but what they have is a deep comfort with not knowing in what particular way God's will will be done in their lives, right? So they don't feel entitled to, hey, since we've been good for you, God, you got to save us in the furnace. They're saying like, we might live in the furnace, we might die in the furnace, but either way, we believe that God is good and God is triumphant and we trust that. And so I think, you know, being able to say not, we have to get a summer camp and it has to look like this, but being able to say, here we are as a community of faith, we're not pretending to be different or more or less than we are. This is what we have to offer. Lord, how would you have us serve you? Um, and and that just opens up. I mean, it just makes us aware of what God is already doing. And I think sometimes we really do function as though what we have is all that God has. Yes, and for years I quoted the scripture that says we walk by faith and not by sight, and um, I was really walking by sight and not by faith, but in these times that require us to walk by faith, there's a, I sense in my own soul, a deep 
training going on. It's like I'm in the wilderness, and 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 God said, you know, I brought you through the wilderness to teach you how right. to trust. And so right. in, in, in these times, I feel like, yeah, I'm in a, in the school of Christ learning to trust because mm-hmm. we have to walk by faith because we don't have um, the resources, the people power, what we think we need to have mm-hmm. in order to be faithful, but we have everything we need. Right. And I think it's about saying like, I'm no longer God's manager. Yeah. I'm actually now, you know, a, a seed to be planted in whatever way. And I, you know, I, was rereading some stuff about Corey Ten Boom, who was, um, a, now I'm forgetting her ethnicity. She was Dutch, I think. I don't know. I think so. Um, in World War II, and she and her family were resistors, and they ended up um, in concentration camps, and they all died except for her. She was Christian, and um, you know, and she just, one of the things she says that is, you know, could fit on a coffee mug, but that doesn't mean it's not true is she says, you know, you, you don't know that Jesus is enough until Jesus is all you have. And I think like in this season of stripping away and, you know, losing things that we thought were just un inconceivable to us that we could lose, like this is the only way that we can discover that actually, our, our Jesus is enough for us and our, our, and our faith is enough to create abundant life for us with Jesus here and now. And that's a thing that we couldn't know before when, you know, I really think the enemy of our souls was giving us just bread and circus. And we were saying like, this is what it looks like and this is what the good life is. And so, yeah, I'm sorry. All of that. So what is astonishing you? Um, what is, <laughs> What is astonishing me is, uh, so I'm, I'm on leave right now from the Grove, which is both like wonderful and terrible. And I really, um, you know, it's, and strange and I'm on leave because I'm working on this, um, book manuscript, which is supposed to be finished on May 15th. And, um, I think what's, I think... (laughs) It is astonishing to me how hard spiritually this is for me because um, I, it's just, it's crazy how many feelings this is pulling up and out of me. And I know, I mean, part of this is just hard to talk about because I know it doesn't make sense. And if I heard someone else talk about their lives and the way that I'm about to talk about my life, like I would like roll my eyes so hard I'd gag on them, right? Like I just don't really feel very comfortable with people talking. I, this is ironic, but like people talking in really sincere ways about their spiritual feelings. <laughs> um, and I just, I mean, it's just a level of vulnerability that doesn't come easily to me. And I'm, I'm much more comfortable like teaching about scripture or, or preaching or serving. Um, but I, I just, um, I don't know. It's, it's, I I am doing this because I believe that it is what the Lord is calling and asking me to do. Um, and so for many years I resisted, doing anything like this because I just thought it was 
ego and like there are enough books in the world and you know I there are better ways that I can serve and use my time and um and all that might still be true um but what I realized was that I I the main reason I wasn't doing it was because I didn't think I I didn't think I could and I didn't want to fail at it and um then through a lot of unsought spiritual experiences I realized um not that I necessarily get to control the outcome because <laughs> I don't um but I but I just discerned the spirit saying to me this is what you need to do and it's not about producing a book it's about um taking this step of faith out past your own your own um definitely outside my comfort level, also outside the realm of what I feel capable of and into a space of vulnerability that's really uncomfortable for me because it's so public, you know, and, um, and realizing that I was resisting kind of to protect myself um, emotionally and reputationally. And, you know, I just would rather not do it than do it and have it not go well or try to do it and fail. And so, you know, even though I, I feel very, I mean, everything I said earlier is true. I'm really grateful for the times when the Lord has pushed me really far outside my comfort level and taken things away from me that I thought were essential. And I have experienced that as, as a real gift in hindsight, <laughs> but in the actual experience of it, like it's just so uncomfortable. And I have been astonished at just how the f emotions that I have doing this work, which is just like, just despair and depression and like just deep anxiety and unhappiness. And I, I like it is. And so it's funny because people I love and people in my community who are, who are so gracious and giving me this time and are telling me like, Oh, and enjoy it. And I'm just like, Oh gosh, like this, it's such a privilege and I'm so grateful and it's like telling someone to enjoy getting a root canal, right? Like I, like it, this is the process of writing this book is like a spiritual root canal for me mm. because it is just exposing a lot of things in my own way that I make peace with my limits and my trust issues like it's just exposing all of that and I believe that it's healing and that's why I believe no matter what happens with the book even if I fail and don't even finish it, it 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 is it is a gift and it is a blessing and it is healthy for me and it will make me more mature and ultimately more fruitful but it is I just there's part of me that even as I'm doing it can can be observing the kinds of feelings like grief feelings and like catastrophizing and there's parts of me this is so stupid but there are parts of me that I literally feel like the world is going to end because I am writing this book I understand that that is insane thinking and I know it's not true but there's just this deep feeling in me so I don't know, and I'm not inviting uh, anybody's opinion on it. I'm just saying, I think sometimes it's just helpful to note that you can be doing the right thing and it can feel so 
uncomfortable and wrong and like painful. And I think it's just really important to, to like normalize that, like not that, not that doing the right thing always feels bad because it doesn't, but like we talk at the Grove, one of our guiding principles is we practice healthy spiritual discomfort. And like, I (laughs) have so much healthy spiritual discomfort right now. I'm, I'm choking on it. And so I trust the Lord in it. I know I will not regret stretching myself to be faithful, but also I like, this is not cute. Um, and I, it, I'm just sort of astonished at how, like, it just, it's, I just know that it, I'm going to stop talking, but I know it has to sound so nuts. Like poor you, you have to sit at a computer and like type what you think down on paper. Like what's the big deal? And I agree. It's not a big deal, except somehow spiritually it is a big deal for me and it's weird and I don't understand it, but it is my experience. And in case it's anyone else's experience, I would just like to say me too. I've sat in many Sunday school classes and Bible studies in which people have said things like, boy, I wish I could have been there when... Moses parted the Red Sea. I wish I could have been there when the prophet Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I wish I could have been there to 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 have seen that wonderful and great thing. I, I am really interested in where you're going with this. <laughs> oh, here we go. But what I don't hear people also saying is that I wish I had the same experience of frustration that Moses had in leading the people through the desert or when Elijah received the threat from Jezebel and he collapsed into a ball of hopelessness and ran away and hid in a cave when the prophet Jeremiah just wanted to die because his life in serving the Lord and doing the right thing, the thing he was called to do was so excruciating and painful so we 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 see from you know from the outside looking at people doing what god has called them to do we just see with rose-colored glasses and so we think oh writing a book how great how wonderful i might want to write a book or that's just a great thing enjoy it um, but there is there is a spiritual cause. There is spiritual work, and um, yeah. So that that's everything you said. Just made me think of all those times when people said, oh, I, "I wish I could have been there." It's like mm, I, I I wouldn't want to be Moses. Well, <laughs> I mean, and I'm, I think that's the point. Is like spiritual work is work, and sometimes we feel like being a spiritual person is like getting a deep tissue massage from God all the time. And there are times when like the spiritual life is just is is deeply pleasurable and comforting and healing and there's times when spiritual work is work and yeah you know. i i love um the life um and i can't remember what um early christian wrote athanasius athanasius wrote uh, a book on the life of saint anthony saint anthony was an African Christian, he's he's considered to be the first monastic Christian. He went out into the desert in Egypt, and he lived alone. And he, he often, 
not often, but sometimes went into the city to counsel people. People often left the cities and towns to go out into the desert to receive his spiritual counsel, but he spent a lot of time in the desert alone. And he um, speaks about his own spiritual struggle, living alone the monastic life. And he, um, Athanasius tells stories about uh, St. Anthony, like literally fighting demons. And it just gives this picture of, oh yeah, spiritual work is battle. Spiritual mm-hmm. work is work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I just think being able to um, have more authentic and vulnerable conversations about that, because we know that a lot of mass-marketed Christianity is just think this, just behave this, and you will be happy and successful your whole life. And being able to say, like, actually, those that that is not, that's an idol. And it might be Jesus-shaped, but it's still an idol. And we're saying, like, what I, what I do have, um, and by the grace of God, is, you know, previous experiences of being thrust way far out beyond my comfort level or expectations or the and and now knowing not just as a matter of orthodox faith but in my own experience how god was so faithful in such an unexpected way and that's really that's really helpful um in this moment and i think you know we all you know we all have um i mean i really at one point we did a thing at the Grove where we had everyone sort of like think about the fact that you're the that you're the fifth gospel for some people. That for some people you're the only gospel that they're going to know, and that doesn't mean you are sent out like an a fount of pure spiritual enlightenment to dispense yourself to others. But it's the saying like the way that you are being vulnerable and allowing the Lord to lead you, and you know create new life in you that that is what people first see um and what it manifests that what we what is at the center of our lives is not a dead tradition but the living presence of Jesus wow i just made um another connection uh between your experience what you're going through right now and um scripture um because you're you are <laughs> surprised to everyone uh, you are an extrovert. Your your sweet spot is being with people, mm-hmm. right? And so this writing process, this is you alone. With yeah, and you, it sucks, right? <laughs> right? It, this this is you by yourself in the desert, and it reminds me of Jacob in the wilderness. Like we, again, we want the experience of a ladder to. To heaven and angels up and down on the ladder. But there is also Jacob alone through the night wrestling with the angel. And it sounds like that's that's where you are in this writing process. Of course, you're producing this book, which will be great and fabulous and wonderful. But there is this spiritual work that, you know, again, with Moses, (laughs) Elijah, Jacob... Anthony of Egypt, I mean, they are, were alone um, doing this very hard, painful, but necessary spiritual work. And I think that's just where you are Mm -hmm. in this writing process. Yep. 
Yup. 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 What are you thinking about? What? I'm I know thinking what you're thinking about. about but... Yes. Um, I am thinking about Carolyn Bryant, also known as Carolyn Bryant Dunham. Um, she is the woman who, in August of 1955, accused a young man, 14 years old, by the name of Emmett Till of having um, assaulted her um, in a store, her store, in Money, Mississippi. Again, Emmett Till was 14 years old. He was visiting family in Money, Mississippi um, from Chicago. And um, she said that uh, he made statements that were uh, sexually suggestive and actually put his hands on her. And uh, so um, her husband, uh, who's a truck driver, uh, came home and she um, shared the story with him and he and his stepbrother, brother-in-law, went to the home where uh, Emmett was staying. Uh, They took him, they beat him uh, um, mercilessly. Uh, They tied his body to uh, some kind of industrial weight. I believe it was a, a fan uh, weighed something like 70 pounds and threw him in the river. Uh, they did not expect him, at least from what I've read, they did not expect him to be found, uh, but he was found. And um, at his funeral, the funeral home planned uh, to close the casket because he was so incredibly disfigured, but his mother said, no, the world must see what they did to my child. And, uh, and I've, I've seen pictures of, of, of his body and, and side by side with, you know, uh, the 14 year old when he was alive. And, uh, it, it's, it's hard to look at. Um, but that, sparked um, the modern civil rights movement in in many ways um, and and I'm I'm really connected to this story um, and, and I'm thinking about her because she died uh, uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham she died uh, several days ago I think about six or so days ago um, at uh, 88 years of age and I, I'm also connected to the story because um, not far from Money, Mississippi, <laughs> is where my my parents grew up. Um, it's where I still have a lot of relatives. Um, I was born in the town of Mound Bayou, Mississippi, about thirty something miles from Money, Mississippi. And this happened in 1955, so I think my dad would have been around, um, I don't know, I guess six, seven years old. Um, uh, it's something. It's a story that. Um, I remember hearing as a child, especially as I was uh, becoming a teenager and going out into the world, and and I remember um, saying to my parents things like, "But it's it's the '80s now, right? Right?" Um, and 
in retrospect, I was stupid. <laughs> I knew nothing. Um, I remember them sharing that story with me and, and hearing about it, like watching a documentary on PBS, thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that kind of thing doesn't happen now. And uh, then we had, you know, the summer of, of, of George Floyd and uh, just very, a very similar, the, the connection is this dehumanizing and devaluing of black lives. And one question that I'm asking, and I, I don't know if I, if I have a, an answer or have drawn any kind of conclusion, but I'm asking, you know, Emmett Till's mother, in her courage, because um, I don't know if I could have done this, in her courage to have an open casket, I mean, really sparked something in the country, not just among African Americans, but among white people of goodwill, uh, among white people who kind of lived in a, a bubble of ignorance and blindness, um, uh, among white people who kind of knew there was some injustice, but when it was shown to them in its ugly reality, said, no, something has to change. I'm asking myself, if that were to happen today, if we had the same scenario, have we become so desensitized to violence? Yeah. Would it have the same effect? Um, I, I think, of, of course, for African Americans, you know, among those of us whom this kind of thing affects, I, I, I think it would, it would still, well, not would, it does um, galvanize and move. But I'm, I'm wondering if, if there's just, a large segment of the country that now just kind of shrugs its shoulders and says, well, that, that's just kind of, I, I feel bad, but. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer to that is no and yes. No and yes. I mean, no in the sense that I think what we did see in the summer of 2020 with the death of George Floyd is that there is still a large segment of the population who are still saying this can't be normal. Um, and so I think that's really, really important. And I know there's a lot of um, people saying, you know, why does that matter? You know, why go out? Why risk, you know, why spend, why force the country to spend money on, you know, handling these situations or riots or destroying property or whatever. And I think, you know, part of the issue is there has to be, um, there has to be an expression of the community saying no, because otherwise silence says yes. And so I think George Floyd, and then it's an open question of how much of the larger context of the pandemic and people sort of having so much of life being suspended that they couldn't look away. Mm -hmm. um, I think distraction is a huge weapon of, the powers and principalities, right? So so I think what that does say is on the one hand, the answer is no, 
people are not okay with it. Um, on the other hand, I think looking at the just avalanche of un I mean, I want to say unthinkable or unspeakable, but they're neither of tragedies surrounding acts of violence surrounding uh, automatic weapons in this country, you know, Uvalde and Nashville and this um, incident that happened last week in Houston, Texas, where there was a, a man who was doing automatic fire weapon practice in his yard yes. and his neighbor said, hey, it's night and we're trying to put our baby to sleep. Could you not? shoot your automatic weapon outside our door and he said it's my property i'll do what i want and then he walked into their house and shot five people youngest of which was an eight-year-old boy and two of the bodies of the adult women were found lying on top of and protecting um younger children so i think you know it's it is difficult because i do think that for many people on both sides of the um the the argument around weapons people have just accepted this level of violence is inevitable and it's not going to be changed and therefore we need to arm ourselves or we need to play the odds that it's going to happen but it probably won't happen to me um, there are very few you know you don't see the kinds of mass movements of people saying life cannot go on as normal until we address this. And I do think, you know, that's one, one facet of what it means to be salt and light in a community is saying um, things that we have been deceived into accepting as inevitable um, are, are not uh, our abomin our abominations. And we, do not within ourselves have the power to control or stop them, but we do have the power to tell the truth about them. So I, I think, um, but that, that is the big challenge. And when we can allow our attention to be diverted by like foolishness, like the Met Gala and what did some incredibly wealthy person wear at a $50,000 ticket? I mean, whatever I, I you know as as people of faith I think it's really important to say both a we're going to do the deep subversive resistance work of practicing sabbath and gathering in community and praying for our enemies and resting in the lord so that we can fight the long defeat and say even if we lose like, you know, standing on the edge of the furnace and saying, like, I believe that God will deliver us or that God will deliver the nation through our works. But even if not, we're not just going to um, condone the, the status quo as inevitable. And I, so I, I think um, and continuing to wrestle and tell the story and sit with the story of um, Carolyn Bryant and Emmett Till Emmett Till, in all the multifacetedness that I think we as followers of Jesus sit with that story differently than, you know, uniquely in a uniquely different way than other people who are talking about it on the left or the right of the culture wars or even the culture war that has infiltrated the church to say, you know, we tell the story, we're not over it. 
Um, and that outrageous stumbling block that we believe is that if the death and resurrection of Jesus means what I think it means, if Paul, if John's letter of revelation is true, um, if our enemy is not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities, then I believe that on the other side of eternity, there's reconciliation between Carolyn Bryant and Mamie Till and Emmett Till. And I recognize that that is an offensive grace. Uh, and I think grace is offensive. Um, and I think that's kind of also the unique voice that will not make us popular, um, that will make us, you know, reviled and persecuted by everyone is to say it is unquestionable the demonic possession of not just Carolyn Bryant, but the, and not just the direct perpetrators, but the whole town of money, Mississippi, like, you know, I think sometimes there's just these elements of the story that you're like, if you wrote this in a book, you'd be like, take that out because it's too on the nose. But to say like, oh, is it possible that perhaps we will not experience koinonia and shalom in a community that has named itself money, like after mammon, after the God. And like, if what we worship is this is mammon and mammon, the ideology of mammon of money is this is what saves you. There's only so much of it. Other people are either a threat or a resource to be consumed. Then yes, there will be enmity. There will be uh, conflict that produces death and violence and the the town is named money i mean and whatever that is not to single out that town because that town is a manifestation of the forces that i believe are you know have have been dominion in this nation since we first began manifest destining our way to genocide um so I, you know, but I think to say both to name that truth and also to say, I believe that the reconciliation of en- of enemies is ultimately the way that God is glorified. And that does not come from pretending that it wasn't that bad. It comes from naming exactly how bad it was and then saying if reconciliation is possible in light of that level of depravity, then what does that mean about the goodness of God? Um, so, yeah, it's a it's an astonishing um, story just to continue to sit with. And what does it mean that we don't just get to say Emmett Till martyr, Carolyn Bryant, devil? And now she's destroyed and she's getting hers. But that we say, shalom doesn't happen until there's 
healing and restoration. And I will concede that for some people, the level of healing that's going to happen will feel like destruction. Um, and I think that's why, you know, people choose to go outside of the banquet where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Cause Jesus says, come to my banquet. And they're like, yeah, actually I'm busy. I'm tilling a field. I am, you know, I'm busy getting married and having a sacred union with only the people I want sacred, union. you know, like we reject the salvation that Jesus offers to us because it doesn't look like salvation to us. It looks like a booby prize and it looks like loss. So what are you thinking about? Okay. So I, I plan to talk about this when we started podcasting and I practiced and now it's been a long time and I don't think I can do this you correctly anymore. You can say the name. So I, I am thinking about, I do not like um, sports balls. I don't like sporting. I find it, I mean, whatever. I'm just not into it. I'm not saying it's, um, I'm not saying it's evil or anything. Um, but I do like reading about sports and I do think it's really interesting that just the whole uh, athleticism, and this is, you know, biblical as well, you know, can become a real um, deep expression of humanity and what it means to be human. And, Absolutely. and that's why, like, uh, all of my kids um, are involved in sports. And I, I, I understand more, particularly my child who's, who's really committed and is on a team, just the things that she's learning about um you know, just working for one another and, and encouraging one another and, you know, experiencing um, vulnerability and limitedness of like you, you can do something and also not everything. And you're, you know, any, whatever, that's a long detour. I like to read about sports. So there's a, um, there's a uh, guy who is a big deal, apparently, <laughs> as an NBA player. And his name is Giannis Antetokounmpo. Antetokounmpo. He is that was great. A Nigerian. He he is Nigerian Greek. So he was born to Nigerian parents who live in Greece, and um, he plays for the Milwaukee Bucks. Who apparently there's the playoffs going on right now, <laughs> and um, the Bucks just got knocked out. They they lost this past week, and um, so that he was um, doing the press conference afterwards. And the journalists were asking him questions like they do. And he had just lost. And so he just came. And he's the star player. Like, apparently, he's whatever. He's it. And um, he was asked. And he's in the playoffs. And he was asked by the journalist, as they lost the series, um, if he considered this past season a failure. because And they didn't, they didn't make it to the finals. But they made it to the playoffs. And this is what he said. He said, do you get a promotion every year at your job? No, right? So every year your work is a failure? No. Every year you work towards something, which is a goal. It's to get a promotion, to be able to care for your family, to provide a house for them, or take care of your parents. It's not failure. It's steps to success. There's always steps to it. Michael Jordan played for 15 years and won six championships. The other nine years were a failure? That's what you're telling me? There's no failure in sports. There's good days, bad days. Some days you are able to be successful. Some days you're not. Some days it's your turn. Some days it's not your turn. That's what sports are about. You don't always win. Some other people are going to win. And this year, someone else is going to win. Simple as that. So 50 years from 1971 to 2021 that we didn't win a championship. It was 50 years of failure. No, it was not. There were steps to it. And we were able to win one. And hopefully we can win another one. And I'm just saying, like, that will preach because I just think that's such a 
wise and mature way of understanding um, that there, if there's value to doing the thing that you're doing, there's value to do it, whether you, regardless of the outcomes. And so I, I mean, whatever, that's what I feel about writing this book. That's how I feel about, you know, the work of transformation work that we're doing in our congregations that sometimes bearing witness and walking out these values produces fruit that is visible and identified as worthy and maybe even labeled success. And oftentimes it doesn't produce visible fruit or it isn't labeled as success and yet still like it, it, it's the truth. It's the life. And, and we walk on it and we trust that it is good even when it doesn't appear to be good. Um, and, and I, I don't know, I just, I, I love that. And I, I do feel like in the culture in general, we need to talk about failure more, but in the church, we need to be able to understand that, that the central act of our faith, the salvific act of our faith was something that was, you know, fundamentally a failure, like getting crucified is not a win, but it was faithful and it did produce the fruits of salvation cosmically. And so, you know, and I really like Paul Farmer and he talks about like, hey, if, who's a doctor, who's a public health doctor who, who also died recently and did a lot of work in Haiti and really shifted the whole field of public health because he was saying like, if you're a, if you're a physician, your job is to be with people who are ill, not with people who are healthy. So if what you want to do is be successful, then you're not going to be faithful because your job is to be with people who are sick. And sometimes they're going to get better. And sometimes they're not. And your job is to be more present with the people who are not going to get better than with the people who are. And that's what I think like is a through line for the whole conversation is like being faithful when you are following Jesus is about allowing the spirit to move you constantly to the margins and to the edges and believing that when Jesus said, like, blessed are the poor and blessed are the mourning and blessed are the weak, that he was announcing a reality, which is God is blessing people in these communities. And so if I want to be about what God is about, then I'm moving to the margins, not because I'm trying to save anybody, but because I'm believing what Jesus said, which is the, the, the center of the kingdom of God is the edges of human communities. And so anyway, um, Giannis Antetokounmpo, I, I really just appreciated that manifestation of the gospel way. And that's it. That's what I'm thinking about. Yes, I, I think um, you're right. Uh, his response was uh, mature and wise and healthy. And everything you've said is on point, spot on, and totally right. And um, my, I'm, I'm just going to be petty for a minute. <laughs> So as you were reading um, that piece, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I would have totally, if, if I were that particular athlete, any athlete, being asked that question, okay, I would have been totally petty because I'm sure the reporter asking the question cannot in any way play at his level. Uh, that would be like somewhat, yeah. like after you write this book, someone who has never written a book asking you, well, if it doesn't get on the New York right. Times bestsellers list, Kate, is it a failure? I, I would want to go off. So kudos to him for having such a mature response. Well, and I, think, I would be much more petty. Like that's why it's so essential that we do this invisible work 
of grounding ourselves deeply in Christ and being able to say that in that moment, like he's either going to say the way I think about what has just happened is determined by the person sitting across from me. And so if the person sitting across from me says it's good, then it's good. And if the person sitting across from me says it's bad, then it's bad. So I'm just going to react to everything. Or I actually understand who I am and what my values are and what I'm doing. And I'm going to both like live out of that. And also, you know, I think particularly for us as people of faith to say like, I can't, we can't be angry at people for not knowing what we have been gifted as grace with the explicit instructions to share. And so like to, to be annoyed at people for not knowing what we were, what we signed up to um, teach and share, you know, that, I mean, that to me is the great commission, not going out to people and saying like, Hey, jerkwads, get your life together, follow me, but saying like, I'm going to live here as your neighbor in a way that you may or may not experience as honorable or desirable, but it's my job to be faithful to you and to be joyful in sharing the gospel and not seeking like affirmation all the time or even understanding, but understand, but like it is a gift to be able to like, bear witness to the light in a place where it's not yet uh, visible. Like it's always there, mm -hmm. but not yet mm -hmm. visible. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, yeah. yes, That's but good. I, I, yeah. And also whatever, it's not like he was not, I mean, he's, he's doing his utmost for his highest, right? Like he, he yeah. is, because I think there's a sense of like, oh, well, it doesn't matter whether we win or lose. It doesn't matter. I mean, I think the glory is showing up and working just as with just as much intentionality as people who are determined to win at all costs and to bring the same level of care and intentionality into the work and knowing that that might not be enough and I won't let that make me bitter or brutal. I, there's a way I'm yeah, going to there's, do this. Yeah, there's a real freedom and mm -hmm. peace in that, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I know that you're looking at the clock because we're out of time. So what do you want to tell people what you are preaching on this week? Let's see. Oh, what am I preaching? What am I preaching? Oh, um, John 14. It's actually the lectionary text. And um, it's where Jesus says to his disciples, he's announced that he's going away. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I have only preached that text at a funeral. Oh, nice. Yes, and I've never preached it on a Sunday morning, and so um, I what, what what's 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 coming to me? I, I read it on Sunday night uh, before I went to bed, and um, this past Sunday I talked about hope uh, and defined hope as um, uh, the confident expectation that the future is going to be good based on the the promises and power of God. And as I read this particular text from John 14, where Jesus is comforting his disciples, he's, he's going away, uh, the word that popped up was, was anxiety. Yeah. And anxiety is the opposite of hope. It is the expectation that the future is going to be bad. Because the promises of God aren't trustworthy. Yes. And so um, uh, I, what, what Jesus seems to be giving 
his disciples as he prepares to uh, be crucified uh, is 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 kind of an antidote uh, to anxiety, and that that's what uh, I, I want to talk about this Sunday. And really, uh, again, the word that pops out is trust. Right, trust. Well, and I think like a lot of times when we talk about doubt or anxiety, we tend to like be talk about it as behavior, right? So like if you have doubt, you're bad. If you have anxiety, that's a sin. And I think that's really unhelpful because we will doubt and we will have anxiety and it's not a sin. It's a reoccurring stage of discipleship. It's just part of being human. And that's why the answer, like when Jesus encounters people, he doesn't say, stop it or else. He says, come and see, right? Like what we're learning to do is trust that God's promises are true and the way to trust is to have an experience and the way to have the experience is to come and see. And that is why, you know, it has to be not just what I read or what the person next to me fervently believes, but that I am allowing the spirit to lead me at the spirit's pace past the edges of what I can control and what my comfort is so that I can discover for myself that God's promises, that I can trust God's promises. Can't trust myself, can't trust the world. Yeah, it's a really simple but challenging idea or question. Do you trust God? And I think to be able to say, look, we have anxiety. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of the times in the church, we say like, well, you shouldn't, Mm -hmm. which is not helpful. Because we do, we have it. And to be able to say, like, Jesus understands they have anxiety. And what he's saying is, I know you've got anxiety. Like, it's going to be okay. But he doesn't tell them that their anxiety is going to make it so that he can't deliver salvation from the cross. And often we talk about God as if God is Tinkerbell from the Peter Pan novel. Like, if you have anxiety, you're going to kill Jesus. Like, clap your hands if you believe in fairies. Like, that's not... If you don't know that story, that's not going to make any sense. But, um, you know, Jesus is saying you're going to have anxiety and right now you can't trust me, but you will be able to. Um, So that's really, I mean, I just think that that's great. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks for listening. If... (laughs) Um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, it's D-E-R-I-T-A. Their mm-hmm. website is deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. Mm-hmm. And that's nice that I'm reading lips now, so that's good. Uh, and you can also check out the Derida podcast on the Podbean website. And you can also check out the Dorita YouTube channel, or you could just go there on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock and worship is beautiful at Dorita. Oh, you're very kind. Be part of that. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church, The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out the, um, the sermon podcast and the um, YouTube channel. Just look for the Grove Charlotte. Look for the Green Tree. There's been some really, really, really great and challenging and deep preaching going on. Thank goodness um, by our guest preachers. And um, you should join them for worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. I know that I cannot wait as much as fun as it's been to visit all my friends in their churches. I cannot wait to be home on May 21st. Anyway, thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week.